Well, good morning again, St. Paul's. Um, so we're getting very close to the end of our series in James. Very close. So we've, got to, we've got today and then uh, one more week. And then we will be all finished. We will, we will have at least touched on every single verse in the whole book, which I think is pretty, pretty cool. Um, just to let you guys know what's coming up, uh, the first week in October, we're going to be starting a new sermon series. Um, and I've got this nifty promotional image that hopefully will go up that is courtesy of Nate Oldham, uh, who's done some media work for us. Um, hopefully we'll have it up in a, in a momentarily. Um, this is an interesting day here at St. Paul's because both uh, Keith, our director of operations, and Caleb, our tech director, are not here. So we are, we are doing our best here. <laughs> but uh, yes, we're doing a series called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. Uh, it's starting the first weekend in October. And uh, we're just going to be looking at the parables where Jesus uses that phrase, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like. And I think that'll be fun. You know, we've spent some time now in some New Testament epistles, about, about six months. Uh, so I think it'll be a fun change of pace to start talking about these stories that Jesus tells and, and uh, looking into what they're all about. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and also, we're planning on launching small groups that same week. So if you've been wondering... Where are the small groups? Uh, they are coming. So if you've been hoping for them, just be patient just a little bit longer. Uh, they'll be here soon. So this morning's passage, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a lengthy one. And so we're going to divide it up into two sections. And we're going to look, look at each section individually. Um, and in the first section, James speaks to what you might call the oppressors. Uh, people who are doing evil things, people who are hurting other people on account of their actions, committing an injustice. And in the second section, James is going to speak to the people who are oppressed. Um, and uh, he's going to have some advice on how they should be handling their oppression, how they should be responding to it. Uh, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Uh, this first section here, this section to the oppressors, it's pretty harsh. Um, now James... James doesn't have a tendency to sugarcoat his words. Maybe you've noticed that so far. Um, He's certainly been pretty blunt. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the passage where he claimed that the church had been committing spiritual adultery. He called them adulterers. Uh, And last week, he reminded us that we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. He uh, he said, uh, our lives are like a mist that appears for just a little while and then vanishes. Um, So this passage that we're about to look at, even though it's harsh, it's not out of character for James. Uh, But it still strikes me as the harshest rebuke in the letter. So, brace yourselves for this one. All right, uh, the scripture will be on the screen, uh, but if you have a Bible, I definitely encourage you to follow along uh, with with your your own Bible as well. But before we get into this, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you again for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the chance to be together uh, with other people who... Uh, know and love you, and uh, we just pray, Lord, as we open up your word right now, that you would speak to us. Uh, We believe that your word has power to renew our minds and transform our our lives, and uh, so, God, I just pray right now that you would help us to be attentive to it, that you would give us insight into it, um, and that your Holy Spirit would make it so it's more than just words, but that it's power in our lives. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. 
Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So you can see what I mean, right? Pretty blunt, harsh words. Now, some of us might be thinking right now, well, yeah, these are harsh words, sure, uh, but they're not directed to me. Okay? James is talking to rich people. That's how he starts off, right? Now, listen, you rich people. Uh, I'm not a rich person. This is for other people. Now, before we assume that, uh, we need to consider how our wealth in this country compares to the rest of the world. And in order to help us do that, I have a couple of facts that I'd like us to think about. Uh, These are about 10 years old, so they're probably not exactly the same now. uh, But still, they should give us an idea of our relative wealth in this country. And these stats come from a variety of sources, but I found them several years ago compiled in a book called Jesus Wants to Save Christians uh, by Rob Bell. So... First one, America is less than 5% of the world's population, but it controls 20% of the world's wealth. Uh, So we are 120th of the world's population, but we have one-fifth of the world's total wealth. Uh, Every seven seconds, somewhere in the world, a child under age five dies of hunger, while Americans throw away 14% of the food we purchase. So that's a sad thought, isn't it? 3.5 billion people in the world live on less than two American dollars a day. 3.5 billion people is about half the world. So half of the world lives on less than two American dollars a day. 1.6 billion people in the world have no electricity. I can't can't even imagine that, (laughs) not having electricity. And in 2007, when this statistic was written, that was about 25% of the world's population. So one in four no electricity. And this one is crazy. Uh, More than 90% of the world doesn't even own a car. 90%. In America, you know, most of the time we just take it for granted. You've got to have a car. Um, But one-third of American families have at least three cars. And uh, this last stat, it totally blows my mind. Uh, It's from a book called Affluenza by Oliver James. And Obviously, I myself can't substantiate this. I can only trust that what this person is saying is true, so take it with a grain of salt. But uh, he says that Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half of the world does on all its goods. (laughs) So we spend more on the bags that we use to throw stuff away than half the world spends on everything. Uh, So that is a crazy thought, isn't it? And, of course, we come off uh, looking pretty well, uh, well off, not only in comparison to the rest of the world today, but also in comparison to people throughout history. Uh, when you think of how we live now com- compared to the way that people used to live, 
I mean, we kind of live like royal, royalty when you think about it. We have indoor plumbing, we have running water, uh, we have heat in the winter and usually some kind of AC in the summer. Uh, most of us have access to phones that have all the music that we could ever want right there on the phone. I mean, think about it. Throughout, throughout most of history, if you wanted to hear a song, uh, you had to have the musician right there in front of you. There weren't even recordings. You know, now you can replay that same song over and over and over again and go find every other song that that artist wrote. Um, so we, we live a very different kind of life, and it's, it's, in some ways it's a lavish life uh, compared to people in the past. Now, I am not saying any of this in order to claim that this rebuke is meant for us. Uh, I'm not trying to make us feel bad either. I think the appropriate response to uh, blessing is, is not guilt, but gratitude. Okay. So this is not supposed to be a shaming thing right here. But what I want us to realize is that when James is talking to rich people, there is at least a potential that he's talking to people like us. Even if you know, we might feel, well, relatively, if I compare myself to some billionaire, I'm not really that well off. Well, take a moment to think of yourself in comparison to people throughout history and people in the rest of the world. Now, James's rebuke uh, of these rich people isn't just because they're rich. Okay? That's, being rich is not a sin in itself. Uh, James isn't giving a general rebuke of all rich people in all times, right? He says, you rich people. There's a specificity there. He's, you rich people. And he gives us at least three reasons why these rich people are in danger of God's judgment. So the first reason is because they've hoarded wealth. They've hoarded wealth. He says in verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, hoarding is not the same thing as responsible saving. Uh, Responsible saving is something that's actually encouraged in the book of Proverbs, uh, an Old Testament book. Uh, It's part of planning for the future. It's healthy. But hoarding is not healthy. Uh, Saving is when we put aside money and we have a clear purpose. We have some idea of how much we need to put aside. Uh, But hoarding is just amassing more and more wealth for ourselves. And God does not like it when we do that. And one of the main reasons he doesn't like it is because God is omniscient, right? Meaning he is fully aware in every moment of what every person on earth is experiencing. We only have full awareness of what we ourselves are experiencing, right? But God has full awareness of what everybody is experiencing. So if we've hoarded a bunch of wealth, then God sees every person that could benefit from that hoarded wealth. Uh, God sees every homeless person who could use one of those long-forgotten jackets in an overflowing closet. God sees every child in a third-world country who needs a sponsor at $40 a month. Um, God sees every church community that could use more money to fulfill its mission. And he sees all that while he sees that hoarded wealth. And it breaks his heart. And he wants all of us to take our eyes off of ourselves long enough to see the needs that exist around us to catch a glimpse of what he sees, and then do something about it. The second reason uh, that these rich people are in danger of God's judgment is because they've taken advantage of their workers. They've taken advantage of their workers. Verse 4 says, Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. 
Now, both in the Old Testament and in the New, uh, we see time and time again that God cares a lot about people receiving fair compensation for their work. Uh, That's something that's super important to him. And for that reason, uh, I think we should be very concerned when we hear that in 2015, the average pay for an S&P 500 CEO was 335 times the pay of the average worker. 335 times. And I get that CEOs have a tough job. They work a lot of hours. But 335 times more than their workers? Really? The average S&P 500 CEO made $12.4 million in 2015. So that means that if the average worker was making 335 times less, they were making about $37,000 for a year. It's not easy to live off of $37,000. Um, So is the disparity between the value of the CEO and the value of the worker really that wide? Is that really justifiable? Uh, I found a recent report that also said that uh, the 62 richest people in the world have about the same amount of money as the poorer half of the world's population. So if you lined up everyone in terms of income in the world from poorest to richest, and then you have the put it right down the middle, the people in the lower half have the same amount of money, 3.5 billion people, as the richest 62. 3.5 billion people equals wealth of 62. Now, I'm not an economist, um, and I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm not saying that we need to have some sort of forced redistribution of wealth. Um, it's not my job to say those kinds of things. Uh, all I'm trying to say is something's not right here. That's it. Something is not right. And I think we can agree on that, regardless of what our views are on how the economy should or shouldn't be regulated. Uh, Something is not right. So a lot of hardworking people could be compensated a lot more fairly for their work if people in positions of power were just a little less interested in hoarding. So that's my take on the situation. I apologize if I've stepped out of my field in making that assessment. Um, But that's what it looks like to me. And the message uh, that James is giving in this passage is a warning that those who withhold fair compensation to workers are in danger of God's judgment. God is not happy about that. They're going to be held accountable. And then finally, the third reason that rich people are in danger of God's judgment is because, like it says in verse 5, they have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Uh, so, basically what that means is that their lives have been about themselves. Uh, they haven't seen their wealth as some sort of means of bringing joy and blessing to anyone other than them and maybe their immediate families. Uh, that's it. And that sort of lifestyle is the opposite of what Jesus uh, wants from us. It's the opposite of what following Jesus looks like. Because when you think about it, uh, Jesus was the wealthiest human being who ever lived. Did you know that? It's the wealthiest one. Um, because he owned everything. Because he made it. He created it. Um, but Jesus didn't use his wealth for the purpose of self-indulgence. He actually gave up his wealth. He gave up his rights. He said that he came to serve, not to be served. And Jesus calls us to that same pattern of living. We can never give up as much as Jesus gave up. But we can follow his pattern. 
So James says something very scary to these rich people who have hoarded wealth, who've taken advantage of workers, who've lived a self-indulgent life. He says, anticipating their future, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. So what's he saying here? One thing he's definitely saying is that all the wealth that's been amassed isn't going to last, right? Moths are going to eat the clothes. Uh, Worldly goods are going to rot. But what is this eat your flesh like fire stuff about? That's, That's scary. What James is saying is that when people who have spent their lives hoarding finally reach the end uh, and their wealth dissolves, then they will fade with it. In other words, if your life is all about your worldly possessions, when your worldly possessions decay, you will decay with them. That's justice. So we need to be very careful not to find our hope and our identity in wealth. And it's very clear that the people that James was speaking to had done just that. Because remember, he calls them, you rich people. Now, we're going to see in the next section of scripture that he keeps referring to the people as, um, that he's talking to in that section as brothers and sisters. Um, but he doesn't call these people brothers and sisters. He calls them, you rich people. And I suspect that that's because for these people, their primary identity was that they were rich. That was where they found their value. They were more interested in being known as rich than in being known as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what James calls them. And he says something interesting in that last verse in this section. Uh, Notice he says, You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now some translations say innocent men instead of innocent one. But the Greek is really clear. If you look at it, it's singular. It's not innocent men. It's the innocent one. And so I think this translation gets it right. So what does James mean by the innocent one who was not opposing you? Well, for James, there's really only one person in history who was completely innocent. And that, of course, was Jesus. Uh, and like the scriptures say, he did not oppose the people who came uh, and uh, took him away to be condemned and murdered. Scripture says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he didn't open his mouth. Um, so why is James saying that these people have condemned and murdered Jesus? You know, these weren't the people described in the Gospels who were there when they actually sent him away to be crucified. Uh, He doesn't mean it literally. Uh, They weren't actually the people who did that, but he's saying that when you mistreat workers, when you harm others by hoarding wealth, you are at the same time abusing Jesus Christ himself. That's how serious that is. That's pretty heavy. So these sins of these rich people, of these oppressors, are extremely serious. Uh, and James, James doesn't offer them a lot of hope, but he does call them to repentance. Right? He tells them, weep and wail. So in other words, he's telling them, realize your sin, grieve over it, because that's the first step towards actually changing, towards actually transforming. So he's calling them, calling them to repentance. All right, so that's what James says to the oppressors. What does James now have to say to the oppressed? to the people who are suffering on account of what the oppressors are doing. Well, picking up in verse 7, he says, Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay. So there's a lot there. But the main advice he's giving to the oppressed is right there in verse 7. Right? Be patient until the Lord's coming. And what I'd like us to notice here is how central this idea of Jesus' return is. Um, It's so important. The idea that Jesus is going to return to earth and that he could do that at any moment uh, is supposed to be something that profoundly shapes our lives. But it's supposed to shape us in a particular way, and I'm afraid that sometimes it doesn't. Uh, It's not supposed to shape us by leading us to speculate endlessly about when it's going to happen or about who the Antichrist is um, or about which modern nations might be being referred to in the book of Revelation or anything like that. James says that the way it's supposed to shape us is by making us into patient people. Patient people. Let's talk a little bit about patience. Um, sometimes you might have to exercise patience when listening to me for a long time on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Um, One way of thinking about patience is that it's the ability to suffer for an extended period of time without sinning. Uh, That's why sometimes it's called long-suffering, right? You suffer for a long time, but while you're suffering, you don't sin. And what James is saying is that the knowledge that Jesus is coming back should enable us to suffer long without sinning. I remember when I was a kid, uh, there was a period of time where my family was always looking for furniture on Saturdays. And I remember whole Saturdays spent in furniture stores. Uh, My parents flipping through these massive, massive books of samples of fabric. And that's really boring for a kid. Um, And during those Saturdays, if I was behaving myself, you could say I was long-suffering. Because I was suffering, I mean, it wasn't child abuse or anything, Uh, it was a pretty low-grade experience of suffering, Uh, but I didn't want to be there, right? And so I was suffering for a long time. In some of those Saturdays, I could be described as genuinely long-suffering, because I managed to get through the day without any major sin against my parents, sometimes, you know, without whining incessantly or getting into a fight with my brother or destroying anything in the store. But you know what helped me to long suffer? (laughs) What helped me was the knowledge that after all that time in that boring store, I was going to get to go to Toys R Us and get a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figure. And that, that made all the difference in the world to me. It enabled me to suffer without sinning, to be patient. And what James is saying is that the knowledge that Christ is coming back 
should do for us what the knowledge of that Ninja Turtle did to my child self. Okay? As a kid in the furniture store, I knew that a future blessing was coming. So I was able to handle the discomfort of the boredom um, most of the time. And what James is saying is that the knowledge that Jesus Christ is going to return, that he's going to set things right, that he's going to judge the oppressors, uh, should help us to be patient in the midst of oppression now. Because we're confident that a future blessing is coming. And one of the ways that we suffer without sinning is by not taking the Lord's vengeance into our own hands. Basically by not being violent. We should notice what James doesn't say to the oppressed, right? He doesn't say, brothers and sisters, go take up arms against the oppressors. These horrible people who are hoarding and denying you proper wages. You know, show them the wrath of God. Bring it on them. No, he says, be patient. Because the Lord will come back. One day the Lord is going to judge and set things right. Now you might say, okay, well hold on. Uh, Does that mean that we're just supposed to sit back and do nothing when we see mistreatment and injustice? Just wait for the end of the world when Jesus is going to fix everything? Well, I'm confident that is not what James is saying. Uh, And the main reason I say that is because of the examples that he gives of what patience looks like. Uh, He mentions the prophets and he mentions Job. And we're not going to talk about Job today because we've got a lot to talk about and I think Job is a topic for another sermon. Um, But the example of the prophets is what I want to focus on for a moment. Um, The example of the prophets clearly shows that we are not supposed to do nothing about injustice. When James talks about the prophets, he's talking about certain people from Jewish history who spoke words from God, uh, messages from God. And we have several Old Testament books that are the recordings of the things that these prophets said. And one of the things that the prophets talked about time and time again was oppression and injustice. And they spoke out against it. Even when doing so, put their lives in jeopardy, which it often did. You know, they called people to repent. They called out sin. They called for societal change. Uh, But they're an example of patience because they didn't try to take God's position as judge. They proclaimed that God would eventually bring his judgment but they didn't try to enact that judgment themselves. They didn't try to call other people to enact that judgment. When you read the prophets, you won't hear them calling poor oppressed Israelites to kill their rich oppressors. You don't hear that. But you do see them actively confronting injustice. And that's the example we need to follow. We confront injustice, but we leave vengeance and judgment for the Lord. That's how we are patient. One last thing that I'd like us to notice in James' words to the oppressed is in verse 9. It says, Don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, when we are suffering in some way, when we're oppressed in some way, we're really susceptible to the sin of grumbling. Uh, And specifically, grumbling against other people. Uh, Other people who are probably in the same situation as us. Now, we don't use this word grumbling very often in our culture today, but it just means to complain. A person who grumbles is always upset at somebody or something. Uh, I remember when I was in college, uh, the way that you made small talk with someone you didn't really know was was basically by grumbling. 
Um, that was the way you connected with somebody. Oh, this class is awful. Am I right? You know, this, this assignment is such a pain. Oh, this professor is a pain. Boy, that other group, that other guy in our group, he's a slacker. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, now, in college, when we would grumble, we usually didn't have anything that worth complaining about. <laughs> uh, for the most part, we probably should have been filled with gratitude instead of grumbling. But these people James was writing to, they had some legitimate reasons to be grumbling. Life was hard. They were being taken advantage of. But James reminded them that no matter how hard things got, they had no justification for grumbling against each other. And while we might think that grumbling about people isn't really that big of a deal, James wants us to realize that it is something that God really doesn't like. He really doesn't like it. Because the last thing you want in a community that's suffering under oppression is for people to be taking it out on each other. It just doesn't help. It just makes things worse. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot today. But to sum up uh, all of this, I think there's something in James' message, both to the oppressors and to the oppressed, that's consistent. And that is that we are supposed to be living in the light of the fact that the Lord is going to return. Oppressors need to remember that they're going to be judged when the Lord returns for how they've used their wealth. And the oppressed need to wait patiently, knowing that God is one day going to judge the world fairly. Um, And they also need to remember that God is going to judge them too. And so they need to suffer without sinning. And that means avoiding complaining about each other and that sort of thing. So as we enter this time of reflection, I want to encourage you to just ask yourself, as the song is playing, as you're, as you're sitting there, is the expectation that Jesus Christ is going to return and judge all people fairly, is that something that impacts the way I live now? Is that something that shapes me? Does it affect my perspective? Because as followers of Christ, uh, we should be people whose lives are lived in light of that return. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, the reality is that in in relationship to some people, we are probably the oppressors, and in relationship to others, we are the oppressed. And God, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see the ways that we um, are in both of those roles and uh, how uh, these words apply uh, to each one of us. God, I pray that we would uh, live in a way that anticipates your return, God. Um, I pray that the reality that you are coming back and that you are going to establish an everlasting kingdom um, where things are as they ought to be uh, and where sin is absent would shape everything that we do, God. That it would, it would uh, have a profound impact on the way that we live, the way that we treat others, the way that we spend our money, God. Um, we just ask, Lord, that your spirit would impress that on us and would transform us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.